Well, good morning, Emmaus. So good to see you and be with you this morning and worship with you. As you can tell, the kids are dismissed, K through 5th. If you're new here and you haven't got your sticker from upstairs and you want to put your kid in a class, just run upstairs. They'll get that for you and um, get that going for you. If we haven't met, my name is Patrick. I'm one of the pastors here. Behind me, there's going to be two QR codes to get connected, to give. Soon we'll be wearing our Vision Pro goggles to get this all going, right? But uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Uh, but we have the QR codes behind me. Um, I have a few announcements to give, and then we're going to jump right into our text. Uh, Jesse Masson, beginning next week, is teaching a class on grief at 8.45 in the morning here in, I don't know what theater you call it, but it's the theater to your right, on that side, my left, when I'm looking this way. So you come in the doors, and it's the theater to your right. Again, that begins at 8.45. He's teaching that February 11th, and then not the week after that, but the week after that, February 25th. So you have a one-week break in between, but he's doing two sessions, two lessons on grief. And so come and hear one of our members, Jesse Masson, who's been a member from the beginning of Emmaus, uh, teach on grief. And then later on this semester, we're going to have a class on spiritual disciplines as well. And so uh, we'll announce more about that when the time comes. But again, it's 8.45 in the other theater. Come here, Jesse. Uh, Jesse did a class on emotional health, I think, last time. It was really helpful for people. So come hear Jesse speak about uh, grief as well. Another reminder is February 25th. We have our members meeting at Northland Baptist Church. I think it's 5 or 5.30, 5.30 p.m. So February 25th, take out your calendars now and Make sure you get that on your calendar, February 25th. Is that the right date? Okay, all right. I thought I heard you saying something else. Good, great, great. All right, if you have a Bible, if you'll turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. We're concluding our series on Habakkuk this morning. Uh, again, if you don't know where Habakkuk is, that's okay. Turn to the Matthew, the New Testament, and then just flip back a few pages, and you'll find it eventually. So it's towards the end of the Old Testament you have a phone, search it up. It's Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19, the very end of the book. Before we jump into our text, I'm, we're going to go before the Lord in pray, prayer, so pray with me. Father, we are so thankful that you abide with us. In the midst of storms, in the midst of sadness, your presence is with us. And in that, we can rejoice. So, Father, we praise, we open your word this morning that you would feed us again. We recognize this is the breath of God, these words that we hear from the scriptures, Father. And so we pray that they would be the bread of life to us, even this morning. Father, we pray that your son would be honored, his name would be lifted up. Father, we pray that the gospel would be clear and that we would cling to it again. If there are those who do not know the gospel, they would hear it, and they would repent of their sins and have faith in Jesus Christ. We love you. We pray that your spirit would help me. We pray that you would protect my mouth, that I would say only what is true of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1851, an English missionary named Alan Gardner landed on a small island near the bottom tip of South America. Gardner was a captain in the Royal Navy, 
and a leader of a small band, a group of people who were, go- were going to take the message of Jesus to the nations. Gardner and his companions spent six months on this island, but soon they needed extra supplies. Many of theirs were stolen, but the extra supplies were delayed in getting there from England. The members of his party began to slowly die, one by one, some from starvation, some from sickness. At last, only two were left, one being Gardner. The other one died. Gardner was the only one left. He was the last to die. None of them made it. The supplies never came. When the supplies eventually did come from England, people found their bodies on the island, and next to Gardner was his journal. They picked up his journal, and in his last entry, he quoted Psalm 34.10, which says, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Here's a man who's dying of hunger, knowing his last hours are upon him. And he cites a verse about lacking no good thing. After he quoted this verse, the last thing he wrote in his journal was this. I'm overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. Gardner was far from home. His companions had died. He was starving. And he was probably wondering, why isn't God answering me? Where is he? Why haven't these supplies come? I've sacrificed my life to be here. In the midst of this, he's overwhelmed with the goodness of God. Now let's think about that together. How can he do that? How can he do that? Usually we speak about the goodness of God when things are going really well for us. When God is answering our prayers about that job, that house, whatever it is, we see people on social media putting up hashtag blessed when they're on a tropical beach, right? Vacationing. But Gardner was able to rejoice and find hope in the goodness of God in the midst of deep sadness and sorrow and fear. In our text today, we see that Habakkuk is able to come to a similar place. In the face of suffering, he can still rejoice. To begin, I want to remind you of the context. We've been going through Habakkuk for a number of weeks, but if you haven't been here, I just want to set the scene, because really these last verses only make sense in light of what's come before it. Habakkuk lived during the final days of the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. He laments the lack of faithfulness in God's people. He looks out over the people and he says, why aren't we following God's commands? And he asks God, what are you going to do about this? And God says, I am going to do something. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, or as our text calls it, the Chaldeans, to punish Israel and to take them away from their homes. But this troubles Habakkuk even more. How can God use an even more wicked nation to punish them? God tells Habakkuk that he will eventually punish the Babylonians for their sins. But the righteous will live by faith. God will eventually make all things right. Last week, 
Charles covered Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3, that God would do a work in their own day. Habakkuk asked God, revive your work in these years. Do what you've done before. In other words, he asked them to act now. Then he enters this almost vision-like state where he pictures God redeeming them like he did during the Exodus, where God marches across the earth. He tramples down the nations in his wrath. He pierces the head of Israel's enemies. He saves his people. Habakkuk knows, God, you can do this. You can rescue us. Yet, Habakkuk realizes this salvation won't come in his day. Look at verse 3.16 with me in Habakkuk, which comes right before our text. Look at what Habakkuk says. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait. For the day of trouble. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. It reminds me of that scene, nerd alert, in Lord of the Rings. When the fellowship is in the mines of Moria. If you don't know the books, remember, maybe remember the scene from the movies. They're in the darkness. And Gandalf, they're in this room and Gandalf picks up this old tattered book because there's really dwarf bodies all around them. This was the last stand. And he picks up this old tattered book. It's almost like that final journal of Gardner. And he reads the last words of the dwarf king, Balin, about how the goblins are coming for them. And this is what Balin says. And Gandalf's reading this in the movie. We have barred the gates. We cannot get out. We cannot get out. They have taken the bridge. A shadow moves in the dark. We hear the drums in the deep. We cannot get out. They are coming. They are coming. In the same way Habakkuk realizes, the Babylonians are coming. They're coming. Some of Israel will be killed. Others will be carted off from their homes. And this brings us to our text. While Habakkuk began the whole book by questioning, God, what are you going to do? He comes to a place of hopeful praise, a place of trembling faith, a place of joy in the midst of chaos. Let's read our text, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk's mindset can be summarized in three clauses, and this is how we're going to look at this. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Even if everything is taken away, even if everything goes wrong, yet I will rejoice, for the Lord is my strength. Let's take these one at a time. First, 
Habakkuk admits that everything is going to be taken away. Destruction is looming. It's near. The Babylonians, they are coming. He says in 317, just read that again. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. For us who live in metro societies, this might be confusing. But Habakkuk lives in an agricultural society. The land was life for them. And the Babylonians are going to come and cut off the source of life. That's what a foreign army is going to do. They are going to make sure that they starve so they can defeat them. If there isn't fruit on the vines, then there won't be any wine or grape juice for Baptists. If the olives fail, they won't have oil for cooking or lighting. If the fields yield no food, they will die of starvation. If there are not any flock in the fold, they won't have any clothes or any meat. And if there are no cattle in their fields, won't be worked. This spells economic disaster. This spells starvation. And Habakkuk laments, and he fears this. His body trembles, as 3.16 says. His lips quiver. His legs tremble. He waits for the day of trouble. It's hard for us to imagine being in this situation because we live in a nation that has a powerful army. I would say we spend 99, maybe more, percent of our time not thinking about an enemy invasion. But imagine if you lived in another time, in another place, when a more powerful nation was coming and you were helpless. You knew that they had the power. You knew that you could do nothing to stop them. And suddenly, what would happen in our society? The food would start to disappear at the grocery store, right? Everyone would rush to the grocery store and buy as much as possible. And you would go there, and the shelves would be absolutely empty. Then you go through all your food stock, and you go to the fridge, and it's empty. So now the grocery store is empty, but your fridge is empty. You lose your job. There's no one who needs services anymore. Your income dries up. Your bank account is empty. It doesn't matter. There's nothing to buy anymore. There's nothing left. No stores are open anymore. The time has come. Maybe you hear the planes in the sky. You know they're coming. They're coming. And what would you do in that moment? How would you feel? You'd probably be thinking about your family, like, how do I protect my family? Lord, where are you? What should we do? Why isn't there food? Why are you allowing them to come? Even though we might not face something exactly like that, this raises the question of how we respond when various trials come, when sufferings come. How do we respond when you don't get that promotion at work? A lesser suffering, but a real suffering. How do you respond when you can't find a spouse and you want to get married? How do you respond when you struggle to find friends and regularly feel alone? How do you respond when you seek to be faithful at every turn, but things just keep on going wrong for you? How do you respond when you lose your job, when you struggle with anxiety and depression? 
when your kids don't behave as you wish, or your parents don't behave as you wish? How do you respond when your friends abandon you? How do you respond when your health, your mental health, or your physical health deteriorates? How do you respond when you lose loved ones? How do you respond when you just struggle with apathy? You just feel like you feel nothing day in and day out. Habakkuk finds himself in utter darkness. He knows that God can provide. He just talked about it in his prayer. God is the God of salvation. But in the midst of this, he trembles because he knows the day of destruction is coming. The Babylonians, they're coming. And they're going to take everything away. Yet in the midst of this coming evil, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of trembling, in the midst of suffering, Habakkuk can express faith. And even to our shock, joy. Joy. He says in 3.18, yet, yet I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is able to rejoice in suffering, to have a trembling faith, as one author put it. Joy in the face of chaos. And I want to just point out three brief things about this joy so that we don't misunderstand what he means by this joy. So three brief things about this joy. First, this joy is not based on the changing circumstances. In verse 17, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, yet I will rejoice. In other words, this is coming. The circumstances are not fixed for Habakkuk. They are going downhill. It's getting worse and worse and worse. He stares at the coming invasion straight in the face and says, I will rejoice. God doesn't promise Habakkuk that things will get better in the immediate. He says they will get worse in the immediate. And how often do we think, I will rejoice when things get better. I will rejoice when you answer me. I will rejoice when you give me what I want. Habakkuk rejoices even though his circumstances are only getting worse. Second, this joy is not trite or flippant. I think some of us might be tempted to look at this in a flat-footed way. We might think the Bible simply says, have a stiff upper lip, put a fake smile on it, stop crying, turn that frown upside down. I mean, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. So come here and be really happy because that's what we're supposed to do. I don't think that's what's going on in this text. Remember in verse 16, Habakkuk says, my body trembles, my lips quiver rottenness enters my bones. My legs are giving out from underneath me. He's having a panic attack. This joy is not a stiff upper lip or a fake smile, but a joy that is deeper than he has ever known. Which leads me to my third point about this joy. Habakkuk's joy is not for his suffering, but in his suffering. It's not for his suffering, but in his suffering. He is not a maniac who wants more suffering. This joy is not the opposite of weeping and crying. Rejoicing in the Lord happens during the sorrow, not after it. 
It happens in the midst of it. I think Tim Keller said it happens concurrently with it. The joy combines with the sadness somehow. Think back to Gardner, the missionary on the island. Is he rejoicing after the supplies has come? No. He's rejoicing. He's able to rest in the goodness of God while he dies. While he dies, all alone. For the Christian, somehow the grief and the sorrow enhances your joy. The two things aren't opposed. When we had that cold snap in Kansas City, you know what happened. You do know what happened because you look at your spire bill, right? When it got colder, what happened? Your, your furnace, it just kicked on more and more and more. In the same way, when it gets colder outside, when the sorrow comes, the furnace kicks on even more in the Christian life. The joy of the Lord happens inside the sorrow. Not outside the sorrow, inside the sorrow. It doesn't replace the sorrow. In many ways, Habakkuk has now come to the place where he is emotionally healthy. He can have joy in the midst of sorrow and say, I'm sad and I rejoice in it. Both happen at the same time. In other words, this isn't ignore or numb the bad and look at the good and just be cheerful as a good Christian should. This is not a toughing it out or hanging in there. This is staring suffering straight in the face, processing it, saying this is awful, and also having a deep sense of security in the midst of it. So we have to ask ourselves, if this joy is not because of changing circumstances, if this joy is not trite or flippant, and if it is in the midst of suffering, then where does it come from? Where does it come from? Where do you get this trembling faith? How can you have Joy in the midst of sorrow. It makes no sense. Those seem like they should be opposed. 3, 18 through 19 tells us. He says, yet I will rejoice. Notice the preposition. In the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. The joy comes in God. Not in the changing circumstances. But in his sovereign and gracious Lord of his salvation. Joy in the midst of trials comes from a deeper truth that knows the Lord is my strength. Even though he trembles. And he quivers. And for the Christian, here is where we learn something vital. The foundation of your rejoicing is not your own strength. And it's not in your changing circumstances. You are weak. And there is no guarantee that your circumstances will change. I can't tell you your circumstances will change. They might not. Your joy is in the Lord. It's found in him, in his strength. When the rain and the winds and the storms come, it's he who is our rock. He is our firm foundation upon which we stand. And so Habakkuk says, though the food supplies run out, though gas goes to $8 a gallon, though my spouse walks out on me, though my kids turn from the Lord, 
Though my friends abandon me, though my health fails me, though my bank account is empty, even then I will rejoice in the Lord, the God of my salvation. Notice the foundation of Habakkuk's joy is God himself, not his benefits, not what he can give us. Habakkuk won't see God's salvation this life. He knows destruction is coming, so his joy is found in who God is himself in knowing this. It's so easy for us to treat God like Santa Claus. We're happy with him when he gives us what we want. But Habakkuk and we need to come to this place where we rejoice in God, in God alone, not his benefits. For if we only rejoice in his benefits, then we might just use him for ourselves. We might be rejoicing in him for what he can give us, not for who he is. And when he is done giving us what we want, we don't need him anymore. Which is why when I look out in a room like this, it's so easy for us to stray from him because we have so much. And we think we don't need him. We think we don't need him because he's given us so much. But Habakkuk rejoices in God, even though the circumstances are dire, even though starvation is coming, because he knows the giver is better than his gift. Have you met those Christians who have suffered, who have had a hard life? And what do you see in them? The joy of the Lord is their strength. They know a deep sense of a relationship with the Lord that sometimes I even feel like, I just want some of that. Where'd you get that? But they've been through it, haven't they? And maybe some of you, you've been through it, and you feel closer to the Lord in the midst of the sorrow and sadness. It doesn't replace it, but it comes in the midst of it. Yet, Habakkuk also acknowledges that even though Even though physical salvation from Babylon won't come, God is still. Notice he says, God is still the God of salvation. Wait a second. The Babylonians are coming. How can he say, God, you are still the God of salvation? Well, he just recounted how salvation has come in the past. And I think he's looking forward to how it will come again. How it will come again. There is another time in the Old Testament where we see this clause, the Lord is my strength. The first time in the whole Old Testament that we see that phrase, the Lord is my strength, is at the Red Sea. After they're saved through the waters, they sing a song in Exodus 15. And this is what they say. They say, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Exodus 15, 2. Habakkuk can say the Lord is his strength. He is the God of his salvation because he knows as God has redeemed them in the past, he will redeem them again because that is who he is. That is his character. Even in the midst of a time where he won't redeem them in this situation, God will act again like he did in the Exodus. Another anointed one is coming. He will crush the head of the enemy. This anointed one is Jesus Christ. It is he who walked upon the seas. 
It is he who split the earth. It is he upon whom the sun and the moon stood still. He marched across the earth and ultimately paid the penalty not only for Israel's sins, but for Babylon's On the cross, our Savior showed his strength, and in him, Habakkuk rejoices, and in him we rejoice. And for us, we remember that one day, one day he is coming back. One day he is coming back. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, we can say, the Lord is my strength, because one day we will watch him ride back here on a white horse, and he will vanquish his enemies. And what does Revelation say? He will wipe every tear from our face. I love that image. Notice he doesn't ignore our tears. He doesn't explain them away. He doesn't say, get over it. It wasn't that bad. He acknowledges them. He he acknowledges, I love this. I think the point is he acknowledges each person's tears. And I think the tears represent each person's suffering. Your unique suffering. And not only does he acknowledge them, but he personally comes and brings healing. He wipes away each individual tear. All of us will come to the golden shore with tears. We will all come with tears, and our Savior will look at us, and he will cry with us, and then he will heal. He will heal us. He will wipe away every tear. And I just have to imagine you're thinking about the tears that you've cried this year, the past few years, this day, and you think, man, I cannot wait for that. Same thing for Habakkuk. That's why he can rejoice. He can rejoice in the Lord. The book of Habakkuk ends with a beautiful image. The strength of God has a result, an effect upon him. He says it makes his feet like the deer's. He can tread on high places. The image he gives is of a deer on a high mountain who steps her secure. Maybe you've seen those nature shows where the deer walk on these steep cliffs, and you're like, how do they get their footing there? And you, you know, all the like animals, I don't know, they're wolves or something, are coming to attack them, right? But they're like standing on this ledge, and the wolves can't get to them. They stand where people can't, or where other animals can't get them. In the same way, suffering pushes you to the heights. It pushes you to the heights. The heights are incredibly dangerous. If they fall, it's over for them, because most of the time they're on this like edge of this mountain. If they fall, they're done. But they're also in the safest place, aren't they? They're in the safest place. They're in the most dangerous place and the safest place. They're in the place where we meet God. Either the heights will humble you or they will crush you. Either Christ, the rock, will crush you or you will be hidden. Christ, the rock. Despite his doubt and fears, Habakkuk has confidence in God because he has sure feet, because the Lord is his strength. If he looks down, there's only destruction. There's only suffering. Yet the Lord lifts him up. God is our rock. When everything else is shifting sand, when everything else is falling by the wayside. So Christian, let me ask you, in the midst of trials, is God your rock? Is he the rock upon which you stand? Do you find joy in the God of your salvation when everything seems to be falling apart? 
And if you're not a Christian, let me ask you, where do you turn in times of trial? Where do you turn? For most of us, we try to numb the pain with distraction, pleasure, or just by pushing it so deep within us that we don't have to deal with it. But eventually, it comes back up. And you've got to face it. And if you don't have Christ, if you're not a Christian here, if you don't have Christ, you don't have anywhere to put that grief that is not rock-like. Put it with God, who can carry that for you. If you don't have Christ, you have to carry it all by yourself. And guess what? You can't. You can't carry it alone. It's too heavy. It's too, and I'm not just saying that to you. I'm saying that to all of us. It's too heavy for all of us. We can't carry it. But if you come to Christ, he says, I'll take it for you. I will make sure your foot doesn't slip. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me take that. He has taken all your pain on the cross and he offers himself to you. Come to him. Give him your burden. I say that to the Christian and non-Christian. Offer him your burdens because he has offered himself to you. And Christian, because Christ has secured a future for us where we will be with God, we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. You can rejoice now because you believe there's something better that's coming. That's what Habakkuk believes here. He believes that the God is the still the God of salvation, even though he realizes, not today. He's not going to save us today because we have sinned. But God is still the God of salvation. What now Paul says, is light and momentary, cannot be compared to the eternal weight of glory. And guess what? It doesn't feel light and momentary right now. But you've got to put it into perspective. The eternal weight of glory is coming. And in that, you can rejoice. Therefore, we can rejoice even when friends abandon us and say evil things about us. We can rejoice even when our parents pass away. We can rejoice even our daily physical pain. We can rejoice in the empty fridge, the empty bank account, the joblessness, the sadness, the sorrow, the loneliness, because we know if God is for us, no one can be against us. No one successfully can be against us. The Babylonians... They are coming. They might even kill them. They might take them from their home. But they cannot destroy their soul. They cannot destroy Habakkuk's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how this whole book started. Habakkuk questioned. And now he rejoices. He rejoices in the Lord. This light and momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory, which is ours and will be ours. Let me close with a story. In 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island. She wanted to try to swim from the island to the mainland of California. This is 22 miles off the coast. If you've ever been to Catalina, I've been to Catalina Island. It's way off the coast. You've got to take a ferry, and she was going to swim that distance. 
When she stepped into the water in 1952, the weather was foggy and chilly. Maybe you've heard this story before. She swam and swam and swam, and she had a boat next to her to make sure she was okay throughout the trip. This is how people usually do it. After about 16 hours, she begged to be taken out of the water. 16 hours of swimming. I can't even make it for 10 minutes. She was exhausted and couldn't see anything around her because the fog was so thick. When she got out of the boat, she realized she was less than a half mile from the shore. She couldn't see the shore. She swam 21.5 miles. But the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. But all I could see was the fog. In the same way, we can struggle to take joy in the God of our salvation because all that we can see around us is the fog. All we can see is the fig tree not blossoming, the fruit being dried up on the vines, the olives being smashed on the ground, and no food in the fields. And we look around us and we say, where are you, Lord? But Habakkuk tells us, look up. Look up. See through the fog. Rejoice in the Lord, for the Lord is your strength. If you are not a Christian, all you have is fog. But if you come to Christ, he allows you to see through the fog. And he doesn't promise it will be easy. We're not here to lie to you and say, if you become a Christian, it's to become very good for you. No. Look at this text. There's suffering. There's trials. But he does promise it will be worth it. And he promises to carry you through it. Two months later, Florence Chadwick tried again. This time, as she got in the water, the fog was still there. <laughs> she was choosing bad days, right? But she swam with the shore in her mind. She couldn't see the shore, but she swam with it in her mind. She knew that somewhere beyond the fog lay the land, and she just kept that in her mind as she went to swim. She made it to shore and became the first woman to swim this distance. We, too, must keep that golden shore in mind when the fog comes. Even if everything goes wrong, we can rejoice, for the Lord is our strength. He is the God of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that your word continues to encourage us and meet us in the midst of our suffering. We pray that you would be gracious to us, that there would be no one here who would fall away from the Lord because of their suffering, because of their trials, but that you would draw them near to yourself. Oh, Father, we pray that you'd give us the help to rejoice in the God of our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.